Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. If you think about stalking, and, and I mean, you're getting ready to go do uh, an archery elk hunt, there's, you're going to have to be able to move slow, not make noise. Mm-hmm. And at some point you're going to have to be able to stay, stand real damn still. <laughs> and one of the hardest things to do is to stand still. It's not easy. And you know, most of the, the training that people do is like stormtrooper training. Like you're running all the time or you're busting ass uphill all the time. You're lifting fast, you're doing these things and that's all well and good. And, and it has its place. But if, if you're not training yourself to be able to hold positions, to be able to move slow and to have the things that you need to do that, then, or practicing the skills, then it's going to, it's going to make you tired too fast and it's going to affect your decision-making. Um, it's going to affect your ability to execute and, and ultimately could determine your success. I'm Todd Bumgardner, and this is the Tom Rowland podcast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast today. We've got a really good show for you. Todd Bumgardner is uh, a writer. He also is a trainer. He's very into health and fitness. He owns a gym in in Virginia and trains everybody from tier one operators all the way down to somebody that's just looking to get in a little bit better shape. One of the things that he focuses on is fitness for hunting. Uh, We're going to talk to him about that uh, as well as many of his hunting trips and I don't know. I thought it was a really good conversation. I want you to check this out right here. This is my brand new podcast chair. Thank you, Yeti. This thing is super comfortable. The Hondo Base Camp chair. Love it. I don't know if you've seen these things or not, but man, when Yeti makes a product, they do an incredible, incredibly good job. This is not your typical camp chair. This thing is super bomb-proof, so that's a nice addition to the studio. Looking forward to that. It's nice to have a little back support in here. But today's show is going to be a good one. I want to remind you that we have a lots, lots and lots of stuff going on. You can text the number 305-930-7346. That is the place where you answer, ask me questions. That's the place where you um, suggest guests or suggest show topics. That is the best way to get a hold of me. 305-930-7346. If you text the word TEAM, 
T-E-A-M to that, you will be added to the list um, and you'll be able to uh, ask any questions you want. If you are interested in joining the mindset group, which many people have, uh, even if you are already on this text thread, you have asked me a question before or whatever, but you have not text the word mindset, M-I-N-D-S-E-T, mindset to 305-930-7346, you'll get a message every Monday morning at 9, 10 a.m., right when you need it, of a little motivational message that I wrote myself. It is usually a quote followed by a little bit of commentary. It will take you seconds to read it. It's 400 characters or less. And many of the people that are in that group seem to be really enjoying it. I've enjoyed the messages I've gotten from you guys. Uh, you're, you're saying thank you for being so positive, but the message that you are sending are also very positive and they make my day. So I really appreciate that. If you also want to be in this mindset group, 305-930-7346, you text the word mindset to there, to that number and you're in, you'll get that message every Monday morning. Um, so love communicating with you on the text thread. It's fun. It's the reason I do the podcast. I uh, I like to hear from you. So if you have questions, suggestions, anything, text that number. That is the best way. Everything for the podcast lives on TomRolandPodcast.com. That's the website where you can find any of the old episodes, any of the new episodes, video, audio, anything you want. You can find it there. You can enter the Hawks K contest for the, the Tackle Direct Hawks K contest there. You can uh, get all the knots there. You can find all the old episodes. So TomRollandPodcast.com, that is the place where we put everything. And now it's time to get to Todd Baumgartner and talk about how you can get in better shape for this hunting season starting now. The human pack mule predator, human predator pack mule. That's it, man. That's, That's it. it. That's, That's it. Uh, that uh, is very interesting to me. It's um, a mouthful. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, your your email address has a lot of underscores in it, so you really need to be able to copy it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the human, tell me about that. Like the human, you're the human predator and the pack mule. Yeah, I think that it's just the it comprises of everything that you need to do to be physically prepared when you go on a backcountry hunt. So, the human element is just the you know, the, the basics of, of strength and conditioning and having a healthy body from joint mobility standpoint, from a quality movement standpoint, from a strength and, you know, aerobic development standpoint. And then, you know, that translates into being able to, to move like a predator. I think one of the things that a, a lot of hunt training programs miss on is that stalking uh, requires you to move pretty slow and it takes a lot of energy to move slow. And if you don't practice that, that's a problem. And then, you know, there's the third big thing that, that everybody just freaks out about and that's the pack in and the pack out. And that's pretty much everything that everybody trains for. And there's way more to it than that, but it's also an important element. And that also just, you know, comprises the mindset of, you know, you gotta be smart, but you know, the pack meal part is you just got to be tough too. So mm -hmm. it's, it just kind of encompasses the mindset and, and all the elements that you need to be prepared. That's, that's cool. So you're, uh, how long have you been, how long have you been doing in the fitness world? Oh man, my entire adult life. So 15 years, mm -hmm. um, I've been a strength and conditioning coach for 15 years. And when you got into it in the beginning was it w with hunting as a, as a focus or you're more into strength and conditioning for athletics? No. So, I mean, I started off as a, a strength and conditioning coach at, uh, actually the college that I went to, I started with two female athletic teams. I trained the women's lacrosse team and I trained the softball team. It was one of those deals where I was in school to, to actually be a teacher. And, um, I just found myself going to the library all the time and, uh, reading about strength and conditioning or <laughs> looking, looking at research papers and things like that. And, and I just got to the point where I thought, why am I fighting this? So I, I started taking some classes that I need to go to graduate school. And so I did that and I got my, my graduate degree in exercise science, but the plan was to go to be a, a collegiate strength and conditioning coach, like big time division one football, stuff like that. It was the dream. But then I realized as I looked into it, that it just really wasn't for me because uh, you know, 
not to, not that everything's about money, but <laughs> you're really poor until you're about middle-aged and mm-hmm. you, and you don't really have a lot of freedom in the way that you execute what you want to do. And that just doesn't fit my personality. So, um, got into the private sector and, and started with private strength and conditioning with, you know, general population, normal folks, but then also a lot of athletes and stuff too. And then, um, now I own a gym in, in Sterling, Virginia, co-own a gym in Sterling, Virginia. I have a, a mentorship program for other personal trainers and strength coaches. Um, I work with a tier one tactical unit and then also have human predator pack. You know. Wow. Tier one tactical unit. That sounds interesting. Yeah. It's not something I can talk a whole lot about. I can't say who exactly who it is, but, um, it's really fun. It's really rewarding. How does, well, well maybe you can talk about how the, the, um, the, the requirements for fitness in, in that world, the tier one tactical unit and, and say hunting, how do they vary? They're the same. They're similar, honestly. I mean, for, for backcountry and mountain hunt, mountain hunting, there's a lot of the same things that are required. You know, you need a good aerobic system. You need quality movement. You need to be relatively strong and you need to be athletic. And, uh, you know, a lot of the programs that, I, I write for those guys that we write for those guys are similar to the ones that we use for, that I use for backcountry hunters. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Cause you know, obviously hunting season's coming up and uh, you know, I feel like if you haven't prepared now, you know, the temptation is to say, well, it's too late, but I don't think that it's ever too late. I think that you, you can start from wherever you are and you can start whenever and, and you can kind of start achieving fitness and maybe, maybe you're not going to make a big, big difference between now and September 1st, but between now and next September 1st, you can be a a completely different human being, I think. So absolutely in your, in your opinion, like when you, when you start to talk about whether it's tier one operators or the guy that wants to go elk hunting out West or a whitetail hunter in the, in the East, like how do you kind of structure a program to, to hit all of the, the different requirements that, that you were telling me about? Well, it starts with understanding what, uh, the person needs. I mean, you can say that there are the general, the general things that you want to hit. Like, for example, you know, we're likely going to strength train probably two times a week. We're going to condition in various ways, three to four times a week. Um, and we're going to do something athletic and powerful two to three times a week as well. Um, so if in the ideal world, we have, the ability to assess and see what the person's needs are and see where the deficits are. So if they have a strength deficit, they'll likely do more strength training. Mm. If you know, their aerobic system is, is really poor, then we know where we need to focus. And so what I do is called concurrent programming where all of the elements of the program exist, where it's not like we're just strength, one block conditioning, next block, so forth, so on and so forth. All of the elements of the program exist in the same program. It's just the proportions changed mm-hmm. based on need and based on timing. Right. And how much focus, uh, are you putting into mobility and, and flexibility or at all? I mean, it's every day, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's, it facilitates movement quality, like movement capacity, which would be the amount of different types of movements your body is able to do, but it also helps with something called movement fidelity, which is your ability to continue to produce good movement over time and with stress. So for example, at my gym, one of the tests that we do is we have a deadlift test. Uh, We have a bunch of strength standards at my gym and the deadlift test. I mean, it might sound easy to a lot of really fit, strong people, but when you're first coming up, you know, it's, it's a good test where you have to do two sets of eight with the 60 pound kettlebell, which is a hundred and 60 kilogram kettlebell, which is 132 pounds. And you have to be able to do it for two good sets of eight, just a single kettlebell between your legs. Yep. And you have to, and you can extend that out to, you know, whatever standards you want to set for whatever population. But what it gives us is the ability to look at this person and say, they can move well, they can do it under stress and they can repeat it. And I say that because working on, you know, joint range of motion, joint mobility, uh, the ability to control those range of motions, that all feeds forward into things like movement fidelity, which are the things that are going to keep you not only performing when you want to go out into the back country or into any situation that you want to get into, but also keep you from getting hurt. Mm-hmm. I like that movement fidelity. That's, you know, I do a lot of reading and, and, uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the, in the, uh, in the physical space, but I don't, uh, that's not a term that I see a lot or, or maybe have ever really heard anyone mention movement fidelity. I mean, you, you, and when you explain it, it's, it's, 
obvious. Like, like it, it could even be down to running. Like how, if you run one mile and you videotape yourself at the end of the mile, are you looking like you were looking at the beginning of the mile? And if you extended sure. that out for 26 miles, how do you look at the end and does your form break down? I mean, I'm, su- I'm assuming that's kind of what you're, you know, on a, on a longer, um, time frame. that's kind of what you're talking about. And you're yeah. using that in the deadlift and, and, and everything else. So, um, that is that something that that you've always focused on? Yeah, I mean the the exact definition hasn't always been as clear, but um, but yeah, I mean because if you if you can't reproduce it, it it doesn't matter. You know, it's like the old joke where um, with a lot of strength coaches when they demonstrate, they're not super fit anymore, but they can do like one to three good reps <laughs> yeah. of, of whatever right. they need to show you. Or they have well, their I'm, or they have their 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 they're, they're demonstrating Assistant, person. Yeah, yeah. Show you. <laughs> do that again. Yeah. But that, that's the thing is like, if, if you can't produce it over time, then, and under fatigue and under stress, then there's, there's a problem. But I mean, the, the foundation is, is having quality movement and movement capacity, because if you don't have those, you can't really access, um, and create movement fidelity because you're, you can't, first of all, replicate, get yourself into the positions that you need to get into. So you can't get into a good deadlift position or, you know, your foot strike might get sloppy when you're running Mm -hmm. just because you don't have those, those base needs with, with, uh, you know, movement quality and, and movement capacity. So, so when you, when you are assessing someone and you realize, you know, they, they don't have, um, good movement fidelity or Mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, you can see it like, yeah, they did eight, but it started, you know, on seven of the second set, it started to break down. So, and you're using the deadlift with a single kettlebell as kind of a, as kind of an indicator, right? So you, you, you're noticing that there might be a problem there. So if, if that needs to be corrected, where do you go from there? Well, first off, that's just one example. We have tests for the squat, for the push, for the pull and everything. So we have, we have movement, the fidelity and strength standards for, for all of them, for all of the, the major core strength movements. Um, so you would look at the, the things that we talked about. So movement quality. So uh, we do movement assessment based on that. So things like, you know, active straight leg raise, can you touch your toes? Um, do they have those control of those kind of movements. And, and if they don't, that'll tell you a lot. And then, um, you know, we look at them in variations of, of that movement as well. So, you know, different variations of the deadlift, can you, how's your kettlebell RDL look? Can you do a hip hinge, you know, things like that. And and that gives us a lot of that information. Then also, you know, we do some, you know, work capacity testing. So one of the, the indications of whether or not, um, your aerobic system is in good shape is, is how low your resting heart rate is. Mm-hmm. So if you have a resting heart rate, that's like 60 or above your, your aerobic system is probably not that great. So, um, and then we also do a bike test where we just have people breathe through their nose, but go as far as they can in six minutes. And, you know, if, if you don't have the work capacity, then all of these things kind of play together. So it gives us a good snapshot if you're looking at somebody that, okay, so they don't have the movement quality and capacity across the board and their work capacity sucks, they don't have a good aerobic system, then it kind of gives us a good snapshot of what that person is. But then, you know, we have progressions and regressions for all the lifts built out. So we know where the person fits in when we, when we can take off that information and synthesize it. So instead of doing a, a, let's say a, a barbell RDL or a rack pull or just a regular conventional deadlift, we're able to back that person down to the movement that's going to be right for them at that time. Mm -hmm. And, and, you could see a big, strong person that might actually need that, that movement regressed rather than doing just forcing it with some kind of heavy lift. Right. I love the, the regression and progression idea because that's where, you know, like, like in the regression, like maybe you can explain it a, a little bit to, to people that may not know exactly what that means and how that differs from progression, like a, prog- mm-hmm. a progressions towards a more difficult movement. Yeah. So the progression and regression would you let's say the uh the conventional barbell deadlift would be the ultimate uh extension of of doing a hip hinge we'll just say it's not necessarily a pure hip hinge but we'll say that that's the most complex movement so really what you look at is how much of your body is in gravity and then how is it loaded and then are you having any kind of assistance so there's something called the four by four matrix, which like lays out the exact position that your body's in, um, 
how much load it's under. So how much weight, and then if you're having any assistance from that. So for example, uh, all of ours are built off of that. So all of our progressions uh, and regressions start on the ground and work up to standing. So for example, if someone is, is just learning how to hip hinge, uh, they might be doing what's called a tall kneeling. So tall kneeling means you're, you're down on both your knees, handcuff hinge. So like you have a kettlebell behind your butt, you're holding your kettlebell back there and you're learning to reach your hips back. Mm -hmm. So that would be a regression of, of the hip hinge. And then from there you would progress up to being able to do that standing. Then we'd move the weight to the front of your body. Cause it's more difficult to control. It's not really giving you a guide for where your hips to go anymore. And then we would eventually work up to heavier loads and, and, and more, more complex exercises. So then we would go to things like, okay, so if you can control, control it on two feet, then we'll try it on one foot and we'll try a single leg RDL and those kind of things. So that's how it works. It's, it's in introducing more complexity and or more load to an exercise or reducing it based on what position is going to work for that person based on their current abilities. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's a pretty sophisticated, um, uh, system that you have there and you're using that like when anyone comes into your gym or, or how do you, how do you yeah. kind of assess? I mean, there'll be like a, a week or two week period of, of assessment. And then, then you start writing the programming or what? No. Nope. So it'll be one, it'll be one session. So they'll come in and sit down with my business partner, Chris, he does the consultation with them and he'll find the exercises that are right for them. And we have a, we have a group wide or a, a gym wide program at my gym that we individualize based on the need of the person. Mm -hmm. So everybody trains together. There's one big program that has one big goal. Cause all of our people are, are really geared towards just going out, challenging themselves and, and living a bigger life. Things like they like to do adventure races or they like to hunt or they like to hike or they like to do those kind of things. So we have a very, we've niched down to the point where all of our people kind of want similar outcomes. So just helping them select the right movements and maybe the right days to train in our gym is, is what we do. So Chris goes through that initial consultation with them. And then as he does that, he figures out based on our progressions and regressions, which exercises this person should start with. And then if they have the opportunity within one of our training sessions, one of our classes to, to do the strength standard, which like one of the things we talked about, the, the kettlebell deadlift, if they can do the 132, kilo, uh, 132 pounds, if we can build that into the training, then they can graduate up to the next level. But then every 13 weeks, we have a testing week where we test conditioning, we test strength, and that allows people to move up in levels in our gym and to clear out other exercises and gain access to new exercises. Mm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Interesting. Almost like martial arts. You get a new it's belt. A, it's a lot like a belt system. It yeah, really is. That's really cool. I've always thought about that, that that would be a, that would be a cool thing to have. Like, because people love to get acknowledged for hard Absolutely. work, right? They, they love to be on the next level. They love to buy and it helps them to buy into your system. Like I've always thought about that. Like you could have like a belt system, but without wearing a belt, that's kind yeah. of what you've, well, that's what you've kind of created there. Yeah, we've given it, we, it, it has colors. So we have green, yellow, uh, blue and black and black's the top level. Um, and it's really hard to get to black. It's one of those things where a lot of commitment, a lot of effort, takes time. And we didn't want it to be one of those things where it's like, well, everybody at our gym is black and have like this face, this false, uh, false, like, uh, achievement, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. this is, is a really hard thing to do. So, um, yeah. And that's one of the, that's the things that we looked at is like, you know, reaching the next level, seeing progression, seeing improvement, having something to aim at. These are all things that, that keep people moving. And, and so that's why we created that system. That's pretty good. I like that. Um, so, there'll be some people that are following everything that we just talked about. And there'll be some people that are like, Oh yeah, that's really cool. I like all the assessment. I like all this. Then there'll be other people that as soon as you start telling them that their eyes glaze over and they think, you know what? I knew this was going to be too hard. I knew hmm. I wasn't going to be ready for this. I, and, and it just starts a, a series of excuses. How good are, are you or, or do you think, 
I don't know. I mean, what do you even think about that? Like, how do you, how does a trainer, how does the person like, you know, honestly, for somebody that wants to get in shape, they don't need to know any of that stuff that you just said. No. That's why they're coming to you, right? Like right. they don't need to, they could, if they want to, if they're interested in that, I'm sure you would teach them, but some people are going to benefit way more from just, Hey, look, man, just show up Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we're going to get you in shape and you're going to be better than ever. That's all they need to hear. Yep. And then the other people are going to want all the details yeah. and it's a real art to be able to assess the psychology of that person and be, and, and, you know, if you give them too much information, they're like, Oh, I'll never be able to do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. How do you do that? So we have, a, I mean, there's a couple things I'll start with. The first thing is that you can't help somebody that doesn't want help. <laughs> and if someone's not ready to do something, they're just not ready to do it. And that's okay. And, and being upfront and honest about that and not really trying to, to sell someone into something that, that really isn't right for them yet. So I, I think that's the first place that we start is we, we don't really, we don't try to pull the wool over the eyes on anybody, but uh, from a coaching system standpoint, we have, uh, I developed this, this concept of archetypes of clients a few years back, probably about six years ago now. And, and they're called what, why, and how, so what clients just want to show up and know what they want to do. And they'll just, if you tell them to run through a brick wall, they'll do it twice, you know? And uh, we have why clients that want all the answers they want to understand before they commit, because that's just how their brain works. They're innately curious. They, they need justification. So we answer their questions. We make sure we're in tune. So, and then we have how clients, which are people that really just want to relate to other people first before they try to buy into what you're doing. So, so what would that really, I mean, you gave good examples of the other two. What would that, when, when you say they just want to relate to other people, like yeah, they, they want to see be, other success stories or they want to what? Well, they want to be a part of the community yeah, and they okay. want to have a relationship with you first mm -hmm. before they really, they really super duper buy in. So, um, and the biggest thing is through conversation, listening to how people are talking, f hearing what's important to them, seeing what kind of questions they ask or don't ask, you know, through years of doing that, Chris and, and I have been pretty good at deducing, okay, so this is what kind of person it is. And this is how we need to talk to them and, and kind of figure out what, what is most valuable to them. And when you can do that, you know, you, you set people up for success pretty, pretty well. It's hmm. very interesting. You put a lot of thought into this. I mean, how long have you it's had this gym open? Uh, well, the gym's, the gym's been open since, uh, 2011. Uh -huh. Um, but what, what about actually, this whole program and like the, the archetypes and the, the, the assessments and everything, how, how long has it been since you started putting this together, putting it down on paper and making it like a real thing? Uh, like 2013 or 2014. So it's been about almost a decade and in, in figuring all that stuff out too. And it's just, you know, a constant evolution of, of paying attention and just trying to figure out how can we make things simpler, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Simpler. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good thing because so many people, whether it's fly fishing or, uh, hunting or fitness or whatever, there, there are those that, that feel like if we make this really complicated, it makes me look like I'm some kind of genius and it yeah. does work for some people. Like some people are drawn to that. Like this is the most complicated thing, the fly cast. And it's like, no, it's not complicated at all. In fact, Get your it's fly on the water. super easy. <laughs> In yeah. fact, that was like, that's how I started um, teaching people to fly cast after I'd seen it for a while and then going to some of these other demonstrations. And I'm like, man, there is no reason. First of all, I can't even follow that mathematical equation that he's talking <laughs> sure. about. And yeah. there's really no reason to do that. And so as a fishing guide, I would be teaching fly casting in the parking lot with the boat in already in the water and we're going fishing in five minutes. And it's like, I'm going to teach you how to get it out there good enough to where you're going to be able to catch a fish. We're going to work on the rest, but you're going to be casting in five minutes. Like yeah. there, there's nothing to this. It's easy. It, it's just a different skill. And the same thing with fitness, like some people just overcomplicate it so much that I think that it, I think that it's so, um, dangerous to do that because it, it pushes so much of the population away from it where they just, they're just like, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to figure that out. And, yeah. and it's just one more excuse not to do it. Like it's too complicated. Yeah. And that's, and that's why we start with the simplest things that we can is, is at bare minimum, show up to our gym three days a week, uh, every day, walk at least 7,000 steps, 
drink at least seven glasses of water, get at least seven hours of sleep and let's start there. And then everything else can fall into place. It, it is really, really simple. It's just, you know, there's, um, I, I'll say that it depends on what the outcome you want. For most people, you know, fitness is really, really simple to have somebody in peak shape for something. That's, that's a little bit different of a story, but, but most people don't need that. They just need to show up and they need to be generally strong, have a decent aerobic system and move and move pretty well. And and then they have the foundation to do pretty much anything they want with their life. Yeah. And so the, the average age of people that you see that are, that are kind of seeking your services out, what do you think that is? Yeah. So it's somewhere between 25 and 40 are most of our people. Hmm. And yeah. at 40, are, are you seeing people that have, have never really gone down or, or been part of the physical culture whatsoever. They weren't athletes in, in, in high school. I mean, I'm sure you see all kinds because that's, that's, I mean, really there are all kinds of people. You're going to see all kinds of them walk through your door, but you, you have different archetypes there too. You have like the person that has never been athletic in their entire life. And either the doctor told them that something, you know, they got to make a change, right. Or they can't, they can't keep up with their kids anymore or something, something major happened. And they're like, okay, I've never been an athlete. I'm going to be an athlete now, um, yeah. or I'm going to get in shape. And then you have another person that's like, he was the, they were the athlete and then they completely let it go and they yeah. have no idea how to get back there. And then you have I mean, others, you know, I'm sure some, of, of every kind. Yeah. Some, I mean, you know, most of our people have experience with fitness and and they, they've come to us because they've had, uh, you know, bad experiences elsewhere, or, you know, they have context about, what actually does work and what is good for them. But, you know, the, some of the, the best clients though, are the people that, that know they want to do something that, that want their life to be different, but don't have any experience, mm. uh, because they just don't have any baggage because a lot of people right. come in that, the, that have the, the used to could mentality. They're just, it's really tough to break some of their mindset stuff and to break some of, uh, what they think is the right thing to do because they're, coach told them to do five by five and just run Hills in, in 1994. And it's like, well, I mean, it's not 1994 anymore, man. Yeah, so you're also not 23 anymore. Exactly. You're <laughs> not. And, and that's, you're not 25. You're not going to be able to do the same things that you used to be able to do. Like it's, it's just, we have to be smart. So, I mean, yeah, we get, we get all kinds. It's, it's more of like a, a psychographic of, I want to be, I don't want to be limited by my body. I want to, if I want to run up a mountain, I want to be able to do that. If I want to be able to hunt, I want to be able to do that or do their adventure race or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, so you, you obviously, I mean, the way I found you is through your writing, right? So you're mm -hmm. also, you're writing a lot about fitness and, and, and uh, other things, you know, backcountry adventures, different things like that. How did your, how did your writing career kind of get started? Do you know, uh, have you ever, you know, lead FTS, that website? Yeah. When I was like 23 or 22 or 23, when I was still in grad school, I sent in an article to them and they took it and I it like, it gave me some confidence. I was like, okay, so maybe I can do this thing. Cause I've, I've always liked to write and, and it's a really good way for, for me to consolidate the ideas that are in my head and, and actually understand them better. And then, and then be able to communicate them and affect other people is, is pretty cool. So I did that. And then, uh, you probably know T nation. Mm -hmm. Um, so then right after that, I started sending articles to T nation and what was that first article on just out of on curiosity? T -Nation? No, on, on the first one that you got published, uh, on elite FTS, I'm pretty sure it was about training female athletes. Um, huh. uh, because that was really what I was doing a lot of at the time. Um, and quite honestly, I enjoyed it more than training dudes because they just, <laughs> they don't have the same ego and they listen a lot better. Right. But, uh, so then, uh, I, I got into Teen Nation and then, you know, from there, I wrote a bunch of articles for them, wrote a bunch of articles for bodybuilding.com and, and those things just kind of snowballed and, and did a little bit of work for things like men's health and men's fitness and all of that. And then um, once we really started to get our businesses going, I kind of, I kind of dropped off of, of doing the writing for the different outlets and stuff because just needed more focus on what we were doing. But um this past year, you know, I, I, I finally have gotten to the point. Well, not just this past year, I, I got to the point where it's like, man, I really love writing. It's something that I really want to do. You know, there, there are a lot of aspects of our businesses now that kind of operate themselves. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to start doing that. So I started reaching out to different, you know, my contacts in different places, like, you know, at, at Peterson's hunting and, um, and different outlets like that. 
and, you know, got some opportunities. And then, you know, my, one of my buddies posted that the editor, you know, Mike Shea of a free range American was looking for writers. So I just applied and, uh, sent in my resume. He gave me a shot and then I, I did an article and he really, really liked it. And he's like, all right, well, let's, let's do one or two a week from now mm-hmm. on. So that's kind of where that got to. And it's just been uh, it's been a fun process to jump back in and start do that again. That's cool. So over the, over the years you've written for, for print publications and digital publications mm-hmm. and, you know, the print world has changed so substantially. And, you know, I used to, I've, I've written a, a few articles, not certainly not as many as you, but published in, in the, the old print magazines and then, but never really pursued any of the digital is the business aspect of the two kind of similar Do people still pay for, for the digital articles or they, the good ones do. I mean, if, if it's, if it's a legit organization, yeah, they, they absolutely do. I mean, you can do, it can be just as lucrative as writing for the, the print magazines. I mean, some of the print magazines, like they're going to, they just buy, they pay way better, but Mm -hmm. uh, that's not necessarily true for, for some of some of the online outlets are really, really good about the, the benefits that they offer you for writing for them. Mm-hmm. I get these spam emails all the time. People asking me to write an article for my, for my website all the time. Oh yeah. yeah I can't that. figure out what that is all about. Like why would I be interested in a crappie fishing article on my saltwater experience site? And these people, I, it's obviously spam, right? Like, there's some sort of spam thing going on there. Do you know anything about what that's all about? To, I think they're trying to back end you into some kind of SEO service or something. I guess so, man. I, I don't know what, what it, is. it is, but I mean, I, it's it's red flagged. As soon as I see it, I'm like, that's that's weird. But I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we like to have good content on our websites, obviously. And these people are offering to write these articles, but I just, like, something's fishy here. Like, I don't know what this scam is all about but there's yeah, there's certainly something going on there yeah it's crap they're just trying to get you into their they probably sell some kind of seo service or something like that and that's what they're doing right so free range american that's a that's a awesome website great podcast great company um ha, and so are you mostly writing fitness articles for them or are you also writing hunting articles fishing articles it's been up to now it's been mostly been mostly fitness but um i'm I actually have some, uh, uh, back some hunting and, and, and outdoor articles in the hopper that I'm actually going to pitch to, to the guys this week. So mm-hmm. you have, you, uh, you're right up there near, um, parts of the Appalachian trail in your, mm-hmm. with your gym in, in Virginia. Have you ever, um, spent any time there on the Appalachian trail oh, or thought you uh, might want to do the whole thing or I, I've thought about the whole thing. I do. A, I mean, I I'm, I'm on it a lot. You know, one of my, one of my hunting spots is actually right right by the AT. Mm-hmm. So I go out there to do some, uh, there's some pretty rugged parts of it in Virginia. So I do, I do some training hikes out that way. And then one of our wildlife management units where, you know, when I don't have anything to do later on the season, I, I go out and do some squirrel hunting and the, the, the AT runs right through that. So I've, I'm pretty familiar with it and right around this part of Virginia. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's such a cool thing. I mean, just we've had a number of people on the podcast that have done the Appalachian trail once or multiple times. And that's just like, it's just a, a cool thing that in today's world that that exists, that you could just walk to a place in Georgia, you could get on a trail and you could walk to Maine and the yeah, same thing cool. for the, for, you know, the continental divide trail and the Pacific crest trail and so many others that people aren't aware of, but, um, I'm sure you have people that are training, you know, specifically they want to, you know, either stage hike the, the AT or maybe you want, they want to do the whole thing. I would imagine the people in your area, oh, yeah. they might people, want to. People love to, I mean, one of the things is just being able to go out and, and be outdoors is, is a big part of, of why people train with us. So I, I don't know whether you have anybody that's, that has the aspiration to through hike. I mean, cause most of the people, because I mean, our, our services is, is pretty expensive. So mm-hmm. people, people that do, uh, that, that train with us are typically pretty locked into their lives and their careers, but they, they love, I mean, they go out and do, there's like this big hike here called old rag that's out by Shenandoah park. That's just, it's pretty brutal, but people love to get ready to do stuff like that. Man, that Shenandoah Valley, that has got to be one of the prettiest places on the, on the East coast. I've oh, been gorgeous. there a couple of times, but never spent enough time to, uh, to really do all the things that I'd like to do in there. There's some pretty good smallmouth bass fishing up that way. Do you do, yeah. do you do any of that? So I typically, uh, so I've, I've fished the Potomac 
quite a bit for, for small mouth. I'll tell you what, man, I think I'm from Pennsylvania. Mm. So I think we have, we have the Juniata river and we have the Susquehanna river right by where I'm from. And I think they're both better small mouth fishing than the fishing down here. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so, so what about the trout fishing where you are? Oh, in Virginia, Virginia, mm -hmm. it sucks. But in, uh, so I'm from, I'm from central Pennsylvania. So we have, we have a lot of famous trout water around where I'm from. So we have, uh, the, the Latort, we have big spring Creek, we have spring Creek, we have Penn's Creek, we have uh, big fishing Creek. We have all kinds of great limestone influenced water around where I'm from. So I don't even, I don't even consider trying to trout fish in Virginia. I mean, the, the <laughs> closest place that's supposed to be decent is this place called Mossy Creek. That's like two hours away. It's like, well, home's two and a half hours away. Why wouldn't I just drive up home and go fishing, you know? So yeah. it's, uh, we have a lot, a lot of really, we're spoiled with trout water where I'm from. Yeah. Big trout, huh? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, you're not, maybe you're not looking at the size of the trout that, uh, that, that folks have out West, but we have a lot of them and it's really fun to catch them. That's all. I yeah. Say. That's cool. Um, yeah. that my only real, I mean, East coast, Tennessee, um, North Georgia, all of that. There's some pretty good trout water, some really good trout water there. And, and some people will say that a lot of them are, are, you know, corn fed, whatever they're huge and they're fun to catch. And I love it. Um, but then, uh, up North, you know, my only real, real experience up there, uh, I've never fished those waters that you just, you just mentioned, which are, are legendary and historic. And, you know, you read about them in old Joe Humphrey's books and yep. everything when he was, when I was learning all about fly fishing, I'd read all those books, but the Osable in New York is oh, a yeah. place that I've fished and it's, it's, it's incredible. And when you say that in New York and anybody that has, you know, been to New York city might not be able to imagine the beauty that lies in upstate New York, but man, that area where the Osable river goes through there is, it's just beautiful. It looks, it looks very much like Tennessee, honestly. Oh, um, it's real nice. Yeah. It's incredible. I've been there once. I never got to fish it. I, I went on a trip there in the winter, like way back in 2015, just to go up and, and go to a resort and hang out for a few days, but I never made it back to fish it. So it just, it looks incredible though. Yeah. Um, so do you fish or hunt more? Hunt. Yeah. And what, yeah. what do you like to hunt? Everything. Uh, deer on the, uh, or do you stay mostly I mean, on the East coast or you go all over the place? So, I mean, I hunt a lot here. I mean, I have a couple a couple of different properties that I hunt here in Virginia. Um, and then I go home to hunt a lot too, but I mean, I hunt, I hunt mostly deer here, in Virginia, deer and turkeys. And, mm. um, I go up home a lot to hunt waterfowl. So we don't have great waterfowl hunting, but all my buddies that hunt waterfowl are, are up in Pennsylvania. And then, um, I take about three trips a year. So this year it's been, I went to California to hunt turkeys hmm. in the spring. Really? California. Yeah. What's the, was, what is their Turkey? Is that, is that, what is that? Turkey? So, they have, I mean, they have, from what I understand, they have Eastern's Rios and, uh, Miriam's. Really? Of course, California uh, we, has all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. We, like, the California is just a weird state. It is, but it's a, I mean, where we were is gorgeous. We, we have, I, I'm spoiled. We have access to, uh, a private ranch that has a lot of acreage and a lot of turkeys, a lot of Rios. And then up in the high country right there. So you're right there in the foothills of the, the Sierra Nevada. And then up in the high country, they have Miriam's there. Um, so yeah, we did that trip in, we did that trip in, uh, in March. And I think, I think we killed five, I don't know we killed more than that. We killed a bunch of turkeys in like mm. four days. Wow. <laughs> it was awesome. And then, uh, just got back from Alaska. I was hunting caribou. That's the second time wow. I've done that trip up the hall road. And then I had to, I had to Montana to hunt elk and mule deer. And all Where do you hunt in Montana? Uh, I'll be hunting Western Montana, Western Montana. My, both yeah. my boys live in Montana. They're, they're in Bozeman and I'm oh, yeah, going, so I'm, I'm flying into Bozeman. Yeah. I'm going, yeah. uh, the, the 10th through the 20th of September, I'll be out there hunting with, with them. Archery. Uh, Archery yep, elk. Yep. We're going to cool. try with, this is, we, we try every year. It's pretty hard. I mean, it is archery hard. elk is, is, is very difficult. Um, and my son, has uh he was a guide out there and he's he's had good experience and good success as a guide but still um has yet to put one on the ground himself really and, yeah so i mean he is he is rip roaring ready to go and i mean those those boys are um they're the epitome of, you know, this new generation of Western hunter. They're training all summer. They're, they're 
you know, it's Cameron Haynes style, man. They're, they're, they're shooting, running and lifting every day and all with the idea that they're, you know, they're going to be the ultimate predator and that's awesome. So I, it's my cool. job all year long to make sure that I'm in good enough shape to keep up with him. Keep up with your boys. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think he's probably been given his, his clients all the prime hunting time and spots. Well, he and did. Stuff now, he, so. he did. And, and basically decided, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And, and I can fully understand it as a, as a, as a career guide myself, you know, there are people that are going to be great at being a fishing guide or a hunting guide. And then there are other people that really would much prefer to be the one actually doing the fishing. And there's no shame in either one, like whatever, if that's what you want to do and you want to fish a whole bunch and then, then you just need to find a way to make a living where you have, where you make plenty of money and you have plenty of time. And there's lots of ways to do that. I mean, lots and lots of ways to do that. And being a fishing guide is absolutely not the only way to be outside a whole bunch. Um, and we had that talk and he, and he kind of was, he had an interesting thing to say. He's like, well, fishing guide would be a little bit different because like you had 365 days a year you could fish or yeah. you know you could do whatever in Key West and archery elk season is extremely short and I really want to be doing that myself that's what he said and I was like hey I I think you should that's what she should do. So I get it, man. He kind of changed his it. career path and and he's got a real job and that job gives him time off and he um, he's ready to go. So hopefully we'll him. make it happen this year. I hope. You got uh, that's good for him, man. You got to know what's what's important to you and why you're doing it. And and I mean, there's a million ways to make money nowadays, especially with the internet and everything, man. I know. Like, there's just so many ways to get it done. Tell me about the caribou trip. Uh, well, I mean, this is the second time I've done it. We we go up the the Hall Road. You know, familiar with the Dalton Highway? Not really. I've been to Alaska one time. It's funny. I did a Alaska podcast right before this this morning with this guy. Okay, he's got a great podcast called The Mediocre Alaskan, and he <laughs> he's a guy that kind of DIYs it up there and oh, and cool. does all kinds of stuff. He lives. He's an Alaskan and lives up there, and and you know he just does all kinds of cool stuff up there. And he's a school teacher, and so he has the whole summer off. And I don't know, great. Great podcast. If anybody's listening, I, I just did that one with him this morning, but, um, I don't, I'm not real familiar with Alaska. I've been up there fishing one time. Uh, okay. and when I got there, I was like, oh man, you could spend like 20 lifetimes up here. Um, <laughs> I would love really to go could. back. I really would summer, winter, fall, whatever. I'd go back for hunting. I'd go back for fishing, go back for anything. It's amazing yeah. up there. I love it. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, have you ever seen that show or heard of that show? Ice road truckers? Yeah. Very much. So the yeah. Dalton highway is the the road that they drive. Oh, so Yuck. you can, it just supports <laughs> the, it supports the oil pipeline. Right. So, uh, we, you, you can fly into Fairbanks and drive up that sucker. And, um, so we, that's what we do. We go up and, um, drive up the highway and, and start glassing and seeing where animals are. And then, you know, I, I hunted with a rifle this year. I, I didn't take a bow. I, I, I really was considering it and I probably should have, but we didn't. And then we just get five miles. You got to get five miles off the road if you're hunting with a rifle because <laughs> of the oil pipeline. So they have yeah. an archery corridor, an archery only corridor. Um, so we did that. And last year I got a really nice bull. It was, it was great. But this year it was, uh, we just weren't seeing the same, same amount of numbers, but we had a guy with us that was, it was really his first big hunting excursion. And, and the real goal was to get on animals and, and get him a bull. And so, uh, I think day two or three of the trip, you know, we, we were sitting there in camp, you know, the biggest thing about caribou hunting is you just put yourself where you can see. And so you can hunt pretty much all the time because Alaska is, is just one of those places where, especially in August where, you know, anything can happen just about any time. You just have to be in a place where you can see in a place where you can move. So, uh, we saw a decent group behind us, behind our camp that, that had some bulls in it. And we were like, well, there's our chance. So we made a fast play on them, you know, dropped down into the riverbed, flew down the riverbed a couple miles, got out in front of them and, and got up, uh, and, and got set up in kind of like a, uh, like a little rivulet or drainage that, that came down off the tundra and, and just waited for them to walk around. And they, uh, they popped, uh, they popped around the corner and we were set up prone and they walked into like 70 yards and he made a great shot and got his first bull. It was really, nice. it was really, really cool to be a part of the process. That's cool. Then you got to be more part of the process since you're five miles off the road. Now you get to carry <laughs> that thing back. Right. 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not that bad though. I mean, and, but it was cool though. Cause he had never really broken down an animal on the ground. So we got to show him all that and teach him everything. And it's, it's a really, I, I like the mentorship and mentorship part of the process. So it was fun. Yeah. Well, we have so many new hunters this year and new fishermen, um, like 700,000 new fishing license and even more new hunters. Um, and is this person one of them? Or, well, he, uh, I mean, he's a lifelong fly fisherman. So he, he lives in, he lives in Idaho and he actually is the designer for a, a, a magazine called modern huntsman. I don't know if you've okay. heard of yeah, it, I've seen it. <clears throat> it's pretty, it's a pretty really, it's a really well done magazine, but, uh, he just got into hunting a few years ago and, uh, I think he killed his first deer a few years ago by himself, but this was like the first big hunting excursion for him, but he was just trying to figure out where he was with it. Like, was this a thing he was going to do? Was this going to be part of his life? And this was his chance to flirt with it. And and this trip really solidified it for him. Mm, that's cool, man. Caribou. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an awesome animal. Much, much like critter. an elk. Uh, is the meat as good as elk meat? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah, a lot of people call me crazy. My favorite game meat is pronghorn. Mm. I love it. I think it's the best, I think it's the best meat of everybody says about elk, but I think it just gets, I think it just gets really good PR. I think pronghorn's actually better than elk. So. Yeah. And how do you hunt pronghorn? Do you do it with a bow or do you, do you, have you I've only ever that? hunted them with, I've only ever hunted them with a rifle. I'd like to try hunting them with a bow, but, uh, I like, I mean, I like bow hunting and honestly, for me, it's really just about having tools to extend your season so mm -hmm. I can bow hunt before I can rifle hunt, but I like hunting with a rifle. It's just, I like guns. That's just how I am. Yeah. Well, I can see that. So getting back to, uh, to the, to the physical side, one of the things that you said in the beginning, I thought was pretty interesting was that it takes special, you know, certain requirements to, to move slow. Um, mm -hmm. what do you explain that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about stalking and, and I mean, you're getting ready to go do, uh, an archery elk hunt, there's, you're going to have to be able to move slow not make noise. Mm -hmm. And at some point you're going to have to be able to stay, stand real damn still. <laughs> and one of the hardest things to do is to stand still. It's not easy. And you know, most of the, the training that people do is like stormtrooper training. Like you're running all the time or you're busting ass uphill all the time. You're lifting fast and you're doing these things and that's all well and good. And, and it has its place. But if, if you're not training yourself to be able to hold positions, to be able to move slow and to have the things that you need to do that, then, or practicing the skills, then it's going to, it's going to make you tired too fast and it's going to affect your decision-making. Um, it's going to affect your ability to execute and, and ultimately could determine your success. So, you know, doing things like crawling, like army crawls, like things like that, that you might have to do to stay low or, practicing walking slow and understanding and feeling where your body is in space. So I use things like, um, balance beams and walks. Now it's not necessarily to improve your balance, but it is to get you to pay attention to where your body is in space. What's mm -hmm. your foot doing? Where's your foot placement and training your body to be able to move slowly. Um, and, and things like that are just, I think really often overlooked. And then, you know, being generally strong and having a generally good, um, aerobic system are going to help with things like that, but then it's, it's just taking it to the next level and actually applying it in the skill of learning to move slow, learning to hold positions, learning to control your breathing mm -hmm. so that, you know, you can control your emotional state. All of those things play into it. And I just think it's a very big part of, of the process that's often neglected. How do you train breathing? That's something that's very interesting to me. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the simplest ways is, is called box breathing. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. it, but one of the things that you can do is, is first of all, learning how to, to feel it. So having people lay down on their back, put their feet up on something. So their hips are bent at 90 degrees and their knees are bent at 90 degrees and working on slow breaths coming in through your nose for about four seconds. And then just at least breathing out for four seconds and kind of feeling what that balance is like, because the, in making your inhalations and your exhalations about the same length, tends to, to calm your nervous system down. Mm -hmm. So learning to feel the position on your back, because like we talked about um, earlier, the more of your body that's into gravity, the more that your body has to try to have control over. So if you take it into a simpler, a simpler environment, it can learn a skill better. Hmm. So breathing would be one of those skills. Then also you can feel it. So when you breathe, um, you should have what's called apical expansion. So you're, you should have your torso expand in 360 degrees, and then it should start 
low, like it's your pelvic floor and then come the whole way up into your chest. But what a lot of people do is they just chest breathe and that just <clears throat> accentuates that stress response from your body. So learning to breathe low and then fill up high starts to train you to do that. So laying on the floor, you can put your hand on your belly and then you feel as you breathe in your air presses into your belly, but it also presses into the floor. And then it also, you can put your hands on your sides, just above your hips and feel it press in there too. And then work on breathing in that environment. And, and you can do it at the end of your workout as a cool down, just as part of if, if you meditate or work on mindfulness or anything like that, doing it in other parts of the day, but working on that skill. And then you try to transfer it, transfer it into your movement and then be able to do it while you're standing and, and things like that. Hmm. And, and do you train that? Like, um, if you look at, like the XPT stuff, Laird Hamilton, um, they are doing some things where they're, they're doing it, um, uh, like as they're riding a bicycle, they're, they're staying in nasal breathing, which you, you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, and they're, they're really working on this with the intention of, um, being able to, at first, you know, I guess the idea is at first, you know, you're, you're only able to, to breathe out of your nose for so long, you get in a little bit better shape or, or you train your body to do this, then you're able to operate at a higher level, just with the nasal breathing with a lower heart rate. And then as you continue to practice this, it's almost like you develop another gear so that when you do actually have to go to mouth breathing, um, it's, it's at a much higher level, like a, like a race car, like you, you, yep. you just, you're in a different gear. So do you practice that too? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you look at something called your aerobic window and essentially that's like your floor and your ceiling. So your the, the floor would be your resting heart rate. So you want that as low as you can possibly get it. And then you want your anaerobic threshold. So when like your anaerobic system starts to kick in, you want that to be as at high as a heart rate as possible because you're going to fatigue way faster when your anaerobic system starts to take over. So one of the ways that we do that is, you know, we do a ton of zone two conditioning mm -hmm. and zone two, you know, from a heart rate standpoint is somewhere between 60% and 70% of your max, your max heart rate, your max training heart rate. Um, but an easy way to do it, if you don't know that is just being able to easily nasal breathe the whole time. And if you, what that does is, is whatever activity you're doing, it makes your body way more and more efficient at doing that because you're not imposing too much stress on it that it's trying to figure out. But also what that does is it makes your aerobic system way more uh, efficient at using fat for fuel instead of trying to burn carbohydrates. You have, even if you're super lean, you have way more fat um, stored in your body than you do carbohydrates. So it makes you more efficient. It improves your endurance and it just makes the um, efficiency of your aerobic system way better. So most of the, most of the conditioning that uh, I do with uh, the hunters in, is with nasal breathing. Mm -hmm. And that could be any, any uh, type of exercise mm -hmm. like rowing or bike or running yep. or rucking. I mean, we or... do, a, we do a lot of rucking, um, a lot of zone two rucking and uh, you know, we use other means as well, but you know, and it, Sometimes we get up into those higher heart rates and we do some threshold type training and stuff, but you don't need that much of it. If you're, if you're doing most of your conditioning kind of in that, that zone two, maybe up into zone three space, like you're where you need to be. What do you think about, um, like the, the new technology? Well, it's not really new. There's been heart rate technology for a long time, but you know, they're, they're kind of new applications of it with the whoop strap, with Fitbit, with, with the polar watch, with Garmin's mm -hmm. got something. What do you think about, um, the, 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 is it necessary to have, have those in today's training? Does it, does it help you? Does it hurt you? I have my, I got my opinions. It helps a ton. I, I don't think that it's, it's, do I, so I want to say that's absolutely necessary. No, but uh, I think that things that go on your wrist typically uh, don't work very well. Um, I think you need a, a chest rate strap and, and there's some decent technology that you, you strap around, like around your elbow, around that height. Um, but I think the things that strap to your wrists are wildly inaccurate mm -hmm. because of the tech, the, the, the different type of light technology that they use. Um, so I think if you're going to use it, I think the best way to do it is actually get a chest strap and use that. Um, but no, I think heart rate zone training is, is hugely beneficial. And if you have access to it and you have someone that knows how to guide you through it, or you know how to do it, then, then absolutely use it. I think it's, it's, it's really great. Do you look at heart rate variability at all? 
No, I don't. I mean, I could, but it's uh, the the biggest thing with heart rate variability is uh, getting people to do it consistently. Mm. And that's where if you don't have the consistent data, um, you don't, there's nothing to use. So, I mean, there's also research that says that your subjective um, is is often just as accurate as what the heart rate variability mm. is going to say. So yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm tired. I'm hurt, I, you know. Yeah. I even that. Like I don't know. I I I I was thinking about getting one of these things, and I was like, yeah, it'd probably be nice to know if I slept. You know what my sleep quality was. That would probably be. I'd be interested in that. I don't know if it's going to affect my training. I don't know if it's going to help I mean, me. It or, should. It, it should. I mean, things like the aura ring are good because they're they're going to get you to pay attention to different behaviors. So if you're looking at like. You know, you only got, let's arbitrarily say five and a half good hours of sleep. Well, then it's giving you the information that says, well, what do I need to do to make my sleep better? And it's mm-hmm. going to start to improve your behaviors. And, you know, if you're using something like that and it's giving you a readiness score, you should listen to it. I mean, because there's trying to burn hot all the time and and trying to say or, or ignore what our bodies are telling us. It's like, that's like the number one thing that we have to train people out of is because we're indoctrinated to think like, I mean, well, we got a hammer, we got to go hard all the time or nothing's going to work. Or it's not gonna be beneficial. And there's nothing that could be further from the truth. So really monitoring your readiness state and, and knowing a lot about that allows you to give your body the thing that it needs at that time to further your recovery or further your fitness. Hmm. So I think it is, I think those tools are really, really good. It's just, um, getting compliance with people to actually do the measurements that, that stops me from using them. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, there's just this one little thing that kind of sticks in my craw a little bit. And I think that if, if I had something on my wrist that was telling me that I shouldn't work out today, it would just be one more excuse. And I would think about the thousands of days that I would have probably skipped that I didn't skip. But then on the other side of the coin, somebody like you could say, well, if you had listened, you might be twice the athlete that you are today. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's like, I think there's the David I mean, Goggins if, approach of never slow down. And then there's the, then there's the scientific approach of look, your body's saying that your body's trying to tell you, no, well, David Goggins is wrong. I mean, he's there. Nobody can argue with how tough the guy is or what he can do. But like when I read his book, I was like, it should be titled, well, if I'd have prepared better, I'd be more successful. <laughs> like that's, I mean, he's tough. Yeah. And, and he's great. If you have a hard time with your mindset, maybe listen to some of the things that he says to get you going is good. But when it comes from a, like being a hard ass all the time standpoint, it's just silly. It's not sustainable. And you, yes, I mean, oft, oftentimes I think you would be in better shape or you would be more prepared if you looked at that and said, okay, well, I'm not supposed to train hard today, but I can take a walk or I can do mobility training or I can do something that keeps me moving to keep the momentum going and to actually give my body what it needs. And then that way, when I can train hard, I can train hard rather than, than being behind the eight ball. And then, because the thing is, 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 you know, you look at something like, Oh man, well I was training everything was going good. And then arbitrarily, I hurt my shoulder. That Mm -hmm. wasn't arbitrary. That was coming because there was cumulative stress building and then you got hurt. So that goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning of, of fidelity and movement fidelity, right? So like, if you don't have the base and your, 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 your body needs a rest and you break down in form, that's when the injury happens. It could. I mean, or, or, it, it made, you help your, yeah. your, your, you have a much higher percentage chance of becoming injured in any way, like your back, your shoulder, your neck, you pull a hamstring, anything. Because yep. one of the things that happens is that you, you, you haven't laid down the foundation base for the type of training that you're trying to get your body to do. Therefore, the, the form starts to break down. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be a form thing. It could be just a cumulative stress thing. I mean, you know, if you have higher readiness too, like if, if your body's just conditioned and your body's recovered, sometimes the form breakdowns aren't as, as, uh, catastrophic to your body because your body can handle it. But mm-hmm. if you chip away at all of that capacity and, and you're at like, you're at level orange or level red, well, any mistakes going to show up as a bigger problem. And so that's the biggest, the, the biggest thing to get people to learn is that, you know, if you don't have to be maxing out all the time, you don't have to be crushing yourself all the time. Like it's not good to do that. It doesn't make sense. Uh, 
your body wants to adapt. Your body wants to have resources. So a good example is the difference between practice and play. So if anybody that's, that's played a sport and, and done it at a decently high level knows that if you go to football practice and you smack pads every day, you're not going to be ready for Saturday. It's, you're not going to be ready. But if you're working on your skills, if you're working on staying in decent shape, if you understand the scheme, if you're practicing the scheme without beating the crap out of each other, you come to Saturday, you go play the game. And that's the same thing with when we look at events and when we look at fitness, we're practicing, we're teaching our body how to respond. Uh, we're making sure that we have resources. And if you're constantly tapping out your resources by training super duper hard all the time, then you never build a surplus. And so when it comes time to play the game, you're going to get hurt or it's not going to go as well because you don't have any, you don't have a bank of resources. So that's, I mean, I think that's the easiest analogy to use to kind of think about, well, like, where, where should my training be? Like, it doesn't need to be hard all the time. I mean, it, it usually needs to be somewhere for between like the moderate level of effort and you'll be a lot stronger and a lot more conditioned than you realize. Hmm. That's awesome, man. Um, cool. So that you should write an article about that. Yeah, it's in there. <laughs> Is it already? Yeah. You've already written no, it's, it? Or it's you're, you're, I mean, you're it's coming. just, uh, yeah, it'll be there. I gotcha. Well, man, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit. And, um, I, I, I like your writing. I think that, uh, I, I mean, the way I found it was free range American and, um, I like that. I like that site. So I hope you'll continue to write there and I'll look for your stuff other places. If people wanted to find you, where would they, where would they go? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you can read my stuff on free range American and then, um, you know, just my Instagram accounts, which are at Todd underscore Bumgardner and just at human predator pack mule. That'd be great. Okay. Now, uh, just for fun, I want you to tell me how you tell people your email address. <laughs> uh, <laughs> human predator pack mule at gmail.com. I mean, it's long. Yeah, it's all one word. But doesn't though. it have, I mean, when I looked at it, it looked like when you sent it to me, it looked like it had underscores all through it. Oh no, it shouldn't. I'm sorry. Oh. I don't know if it did, but well, it's, it, it should I, be all one word. Okay. All right. Well, better. Cause I thought you were going to say H underscore U underscore. Oh no, no, no. I, it must've been something messed up in our text. No, I, I wouldn't do that to people. That's just rude. I looked at that and I was like, man, you're definitely going to have to copy that. That's what I said earlier. I don't know. And you kind of didn't, didn't understand what I was saying, but I, I, I screenshot it, send it to you, but it, okay. there were like, there were like a hundred underscores oh, in really? there. And I was like, man, he really wanted that because there was obviously a human pack <laughs> mule, <laughs> human performance yeah. pack mule that had, you know, maybe half that many. And he's like, now, nah, man, I'm going for it. I'm going to get that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it must've just came through funky, man. I don't know what's up there. Yeah. I got you. Okay. Todd, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks uh, for, for helping us out with a lot of training advice and, and uh, um, man, we'll, we'll be looking out for you. I appreciate it. Appreciate right. it, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. See you.